Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 38 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Mainman, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing their Mainman artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. The people that worked for Main Man were all these fabulous Know Your Queens. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. It did add to the complete uniqueness of the situation. And not only on stage was it theatrical, but off stage it was theatrical as well. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Marianne Faithful, Amanda Leah, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop. Lou Reed and David Bowie. I had a strange kind of uh, string knitted costume made with three hands on, two of them on my chest, looking like I was being gripped from the back. Wooden hands, they were a light plywood but beautifully carved, spray painted gold, and uh, a third one on my crotch. And uh, I know he started a riot with the Americans, and they said, oh, we cash, oh, that, that's subversive, and that's, uh, you know, oh, we went through hell. So I had to take the hand off my crotch, and then, of course, they didn't like the black pouch. So, again, like the Diamond Dogs thing, where they airbrushed the dick off, I mean, I was, I was having more erasure <laughs> problems. It followed me all through the 70s. In this episode, we're continuing to profile Freddie Baretti's incredibly important professional and personal relationship with Angie and David, designing the early Ziggy Stardust outfits and some of David's incredible street clothes. The Bowies first met Freddie in late 1970 in the infamous Sombrero nightclub in Kensington, London, which became a very influential social hub during the time that David was morphing from his Marlena Dietrich-inspired folk wannabe into his pansexual alien rock god. On the night that Angie and David met Freddie, he was at the club with his friend and flatmate Wendy Kirby, who became part of the Bowie's inner circle and was immortalised when David name-checked her in All the Young Dudes. So the ideal person to explain how Freddie entered the Bowie's orbit. At home in London, Wendy explained how she first became part of the Sombrero crowd. It was a Sunday evening and I was with some friends, two guys that I knew they said they were straight, but who knows? Anyway, we were all bored, and um, one of them, Dennis, said to me, I know this club, everyone's going to this club in High Street, Ken. Why don't we go there and have a look? He said, it's a gay club. So I thought, a gay club? Well, I don't really want to go to a gay club because I want people to look at me, and no gay men are going to be looking at me. So he took me into it, and I dressed up. I dressed up, I remember I had a yellow dress with spaghetti straps and a turban to match and glittery eyes. Anyway, we took a cab to the sombrero. My first surprise was there was masses of people outside the door. I'm thinking this is a little gay club, some seedy place that, I know, gay clubs back in the day were usually in an attic in Soho. 
but there was millions of people massing about and they all looked fab. And I thought, what's this? Anyway, we had to queue up. So we queued up and we were all queuing on the stairs. You went in, there was a little wooden door and there was a staircase that led to the basement to the club. Back in the day, I, I had rather a, a docker's mouth. You know, I swore all the time. I was only, what, I mean, yeah, 19, 18, 19. And um, I was standing waiting in this line and talking to my friend and effing and blinding. And Dennis was going, shh. Um, anyway, we got to the bottom of the stairs and we went into the club and I left Dennis and Bill hanging by the bar and I looked round and it was full of the most beautiful men and, wow, and straight people. Sunday, a lot of straight people came, lots of sort of celebs. And Anyway, I went down and far from being ignored, all these men came up to me and said, darling, you look divine. Oh, you look fat. I thought, well, I love this. This is fabulous. And they were saying, oh, fabulous, darling. So I got on the dance floor and did all my dancing. I think Freddie clocked me that night because he talked to me about it later. Another thing that went through my head was I could pop down here, have a laugh and dance and not be hassled. So Bill, Dennis and I left and I decided to come back, I think, on a Tuesday night. It was open seven days a week. And I came back on the Tuesday, and I think that's when I met Freddie. Because there wasn't that many people there. It was, it was mostly gay men. And I came in in some other outrageous outfit. Um, luckily, Armadeo, the manager, took a shine to me. And I never paid to get in after that, ever. Harry Lobshaw, the owner, was there. I don't think Harry liked women that much, but he understood that we added a certain bit of glamour to the club, so he put up with us, really. And he got, hello, darling, through gritted teeth. <laughs> and he was always sitting on, up in the booth with champagne. And I think I got talking to Freddie on that night, and he mentioned, he said, darling, this vision came down the stairs and you sounded like an old trucker. <laughs> and obviously that appealed to him because <laughs> it was camp. We had a lot in common, Freddie and I. We were both estranged from our families. Freddie really didn't see his family apart from his grandparents. And I was estranged from my family. Didn't see anyone really at that time from my family. So we had that in common. Also, we were working <laughs> in, um, I say, let's say it was the fringes of society. I was working in a nightclub as a hostess and my job was to sell overpriced champagne to very rich men and whatever else I wanted to do. And Freddie sometimes supplemented his income with, uh, he'd go up to Half Moon Street and <laughs> whatever happened up there happened. He didn't need to. I mean, I'm not quite sure why he did that. But he knew all the rent boys up on Half Moon Street. I think, was it um, Lee Blackchild has said that Freddie was a dilly boy? No way. Freddie would never have worked down on the dilly. He worked in Mayfair, Shepherd's Market. Because Lee has actually said, I've never mentioned what Freddie did, but that was our common denominator. We were both for sale, basically. <laughs> And we bonded on that because it's a strange world and you don't know who to trust. We're very young and didn't know what the hell to do with ourselves, really. Bit, bit crazy. Um, so we bonded over that. Freddie was a lot more sensible than I was. I was very wild, 
I liked drugs. I, you know, I was a bit crazy. Whereas Freddie was more sensible, even though he was sort of living that life, he was a lot more sensible than me. And I'd say our relationship was big brother and wild child. And he looked after me. He was kind. He was very kind. He could dance like a dream. You get on the dance floor and wow, he was great. So we used to dance all night. It came about that we needed a place to stay. So we decided to rent a little flat in Holland Park. And we shared this flat. There was a great big bed where Freddie and I slept. And there was a little bedroom off the side where Freddie brought back trade. (laughs) And his taste in men was odd to me as a young girl. uh, They were usually 20 years older than him. Not very handsome. And all the time I knew Freddie, he never talked about young, good-looking men. He never went out with a young, good-looking man, which was strange because he was so beautiful. Like, I'd be saying, oh, look at him over there, he's gorgeous, and look at that guy, and Freddie never... I think he had a difficult relationship with his father, and I think maybe he was looking for a, a father figure because he wasn't interested in young guys at all. Whereas I was the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, I had such handsome boyfriends back then. So that was the situation that we were living together. And Daniela came into the picture, Daniela Palmer. We became friends with her. She was only 16 and she was very pretty. And I got to know Antonello as well. He was the disc jockey. He had worked at Vidal Sassoon. He was a hairdresser. And he dyed Daniela's hair blonde. And it looked amazing. It looked uh, incredible. There was another girl called Maxine, who I'm still in touch with today, and they dyed the back of her hair pink, in a pink heart. So there was a little group of us, and there were the little rent boys like Daryl and all that kind of wild, and Mickey King, who went on to record um, Rupert the Riley for David. We knew him as Michael. Michael was a 16-year-old rent boy. And, God, he was addicted to speed. And whenever you saw Michael, he had a black line round his mouth where he'd been chewing chewing gum and the speed. He'd been manically chewing gum. Freddie was very fond of him. There was no relationship. It was, again, the big brother, crazy, wild child type of thing. And uh, he was fond of Michael. He made clothes. He made all his own clothes but I don't think he was working people have said he worked as a tailor but I don't remember that he always made clothes the stuff he made for David was very similar to what he wore like I remember that white suit with a long coat and he looked amazing I mean he was six foot tall he had the best hair of marvelous thick blonde hair he had the attitude he was camp but not feminine if that makes any sense like very camp but I wouldn't describe Freddie as feminine I would say that he was camp but there was a masculinity the way he walked and I've talked to Freddie's brother Stephen and Freddie was interested in making clothes when he was very young he even designed his own designer label to put in the back of, you know, when he became Yves Saint Laurent or whatever. But we didn't really discuss it. Like, my life was... I lived kind of this sort of crazy life. And the appeal of this sombrero for me was that being gay back in the 70s was hard. 
It's not like it is today. And there was things like queer bashing going on. And people had very negative attitudes to gay men, definitely. And I know some of the boys in the sombrero were beaten up when they went out afterwards. So that feeling of being an outsider, you know, different from the rest, appealed to me. Because I was myself an outsider and different to the rest. You don't go into polite company and say oh, yes, well, I'm working as a hostess at Churchill's. You just don't. But in the sombrero, yes, I could tell them everything, you know, not hide anything. And and that was a relief. Plus, nobody molested you. I could go down there in tiny little dresses and half naked, and nobody's going to sort of grope you or go to a straight club, and it was a different kind of thing. And plus, all the attention I got. Those guys never stopped telling me how beautiful I was. I was totally addicted to the sombrero, my fix it was. The reason the sombrero ended up being called the sombrero was because there was a neon hat outside the restaurant that was kind of parallel to the doors. So people assumed that the club was called the sombrero. Very few people called it yours or mine. You went down some steps and there was a little desk at the bottom where... Armadeo, the manager, always stood, tall, very elegant, flamboyant, Italian queen. (laughs) And there'd be another guy, a little Spanish guy, taking money. And you went down and you paid to go in. I think it was three pounds, if I remember. And once you'd paid, they gave you a little ticket. You turned left and there were some more little steps and that took you into the club proper. Now, the club wasn't a huge club, When you think of these massive clubs today, it was quite small and it had little booths all round the walls. There was a bar where all the waiters took orders and served drinks, but in the middle was a dance floor and it was cut into sections uh, like a pie and it was lit from underneath and the colours changed as you were dancing, which was quite radical in those days. Not many places had that. And behind the um, dance floor was a kind of an opening (laughs) where the DJ was. That's where Antonello stood. There was just a deck. It was so, compared to today's stuff, it was just an ordinary double deck where Antonello, no seating, no glamour in there. (laughs) But I used to head for there because I was friends with Antonello. To the side were booths, two booths, velvet-coloured. There was... I think red tablecloths, if I remember, red tablecloths. And in front of the dance floor, there were a few tables and all round the back. Harry Lobshaws, the owner, he used to sit in between the bar and the entrance. So you've got the people coming in that side, you've got the bar that side, and you've got Harry and all his celebs and whoever who came to pay court to him, they would always be there. And there was always young guys and buckets of champagne. You could go there and be totally anonymous. The only proviso legally was you had to serve food. Harry got the licence, but only with food. So at midnight, the waiters would come round with a plate of ham and a bit of salad, and they'd give it to everybody. Um, so if the police came down and said, well, you know, where's the people eating? We're holding ham, ham salads. So that was the only proviso. But you could go to the sombrero and be totally safe. For me, anyway, as a woman, I loved it. And there were lots of other women that did come as well. 
Armadale had a soft spot for a working girl and there were many working girls that came to the sombrero and I don't know why he had a soft spot for working girls but he did and he stopped a lot of women coming in wasn't any woman could go to the sombrero he was a bit wary of lesbians because he'd let lesbians in before and they'd ended up brawling and at one point all women were barred and then slowly slowly but he was very particular what women came into the club you had to bring something you know you had to like I'd go down there in outrageous outfits dressed like Marilyn Monroe and turbans and I really made an effort and that adds something and Daniela made an effort and Freddie made an effort they'd tell me they'd say oh Wendy if I was a woman I'd be you because it was very doll-like um bit untouchable unapproachable I suppose kind of had a you know don't come near me kind of attitude so I was quite doll-like but once I kind of loosened up I said those guys were so sweet to me they were very sweet and I remember Pierre Laroche what a lovely guy he was French guy big tall blonde I got to know Pierre quite well but mostly in the sombrero and Outside, we used to all go to this cafe. There was two cafes we went to. One was called the Luna, and the second was the Aji Barber. So we'd all go there after the sombrero. Pierre once offered to do my makeup, and I turned him down. Can you believe regrets I've got of you? <laughs> How mad was that? Oh, I, I was a bit arrogant as well. <laughs> but he was a lovely guy. Oh, so sweet. And there were lots. There was a guy called Fernando who worked at Yves Saint Laurent. He turned up in the latest Saint Laurent outfits and he was very camp, very handsome. There was Peter Himwood, who became Rocky of the Rocky Horror Show, that beautiful blonde. He was quite a shy guy, nothing like... He was very beautiful. Ossie Clark. I mean, there had been other gay clubs like the Gigolo and the Pink Elephant, but they didn't have the glamour of the sombrero. Like, I'd, I'd been to, yeah, I think the Pink Elephant and, the, and Louise's, but they were all in sort of attics or grubby basements, and I think what the sombrero had was a bit of class. It wasn't a meat market. There were clubs like the La Douce, which was a toilet. <laughs> it, was a blood, it was awful. It stunk of urine. It was horrible. I only went there twice because Freddie dragged me down there. But the sombrero wasn't like that. People came to meet boyfriends there. Lots of relationships started there. Boy George met Marilyn there. Much later in the 80s, all the punk crowd went to the sombrero. At the time when we met David, Freddie and I were living together in Holland Park. I can't remember if Freddie was already there or I went down... But we went to the club. It wasn't particularly busy. And if I remember rightly, it was a Tuesday night. And we came into the club. Freddie was wearing, I think, blue. There's another thing I want to correct. Angie has been quoted as saying when she met Freddie, he was wearing gold hot pants. I have asked Angie, was this true? She said, no way. Freddie would not have worn hot pants let alone gold hot pants. He had long skinny legs and sort of quite, you know, bunion-y feet. It just wouldn't have worked. So I'd just like to say for the record, Freddie never, ever wore hot pants. <laughs> Maybe some other people did and looked great in them, but not him. So he, I think he was wearing his blue suit and I think I was wearing Ozzy Clark. And we were on the dance floor, dancing away. And this voice... <laughs> 
heard this voice. How oh, you look so wonderful. You look fine. Come and have a glass of champagne. And there's this tall, skinny lady standing there, American, obviously. And there was Antonello's DJ booth. And beside it was the booth that David and Angie were sitting in. I looked over. She said, we're sitting over there. So I looked over and I could see a guy with long blonde hair wearing a dress, the Mr. Fish dress. I kind of nodded at Angie and went, okay. And we carried on dancing. And I can't remember if it was me or Freddie who said, I think it was me who said, is that David Bowie in the corner? Because he'd had one hit record and he didn't look anything like the space oddity David. You know, he had this long hair and sitting in a corner, nothing extraordinary about him. And I think Freddie said, yeah, there is. And we were dancing and said, shall we go over? We thought about it. And to be like, why should we go over? We don't know these people. And we were dancing away and we went, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. So we went over, sat down with them and we all had a glass of champagne. And they were great. They were really easy to be with. Angie, of course, is, you know, force of energy you know, she was very upfront. Oh, she'd ask you questions and where did you get that outfit? And she was wearing, if I remember, Frederick of Hollywood mules. And I was very impressed by that because you couldn't get them here. And they looked great and she had long legs. I can't remember what we talked about. I haven't got a clue what we talked about, but it would have been how long have you been here and all the ordinary things. David was quite shy. It was Angie that did all the talking and Freddie, I think, talked to David and... If David had been in a straight club, it would have been a really big deal. But the sombrero, people had their own styles. The waiters all wore Mr. Freedom outfits, little dungarees, uh, Mickey Mouse. People wore whatever they felt. Like I remember Colin, who was in the chorus of hair, turning up in a sheet and some laurel leaves. <laughs> so I don't think it was that big a deal David being in a dress, but nobody else was wearing that dress. I think what people would have noticed was the beautiful style of the dress. It was made by Mr. Fish, and it wasn't your ordinary dress. It was beautifully styled, beautiful detailing on it. And I think that would be the only reason that people would look twice. Not because he was outrageous. He looked quite ordinary, actually, compared to maybe to Freddie. <laughs> because he didn't have that, that oomph. At that time, I'm talking about that time, that oomph that Freddie had. Oh, we were piss elegant. Oh, we were. And then I don't know quite what happened, but we ended up being friends with them. And David liked Freddie's clothes. And along the way, Freddie started to design for David. But before this, I'm, I'm with Freddie, and we're just ordinary, in our heads, just ordinary people. Suddenly, Freddie, I think David had a big crush on Freddie. Big, big crush. Uh, and I think he wanted Freddie to be in his orbit. So he gave Freddie things to do. And before he ever became David's dresser, I think he did all the Arnold Corns thing, which we thought was hilarious. Like Antonello and Dan, like Freddie as a singer, Rudy Valentino. And like we took the piss, <laughs> we really took the piss out of him. But it came to pass. David put him in the group. And Freddie started making kind of little bits and pieces for David. And we thought it was hilarious. But when M Michael, Mickey King, did a record, we couldn't believe it. 
Like, what? Now, people have said that David and Freddie had some kind of affair. They didn't. They didn't. And I know that from Freddie, because David was not Freddie's type. He was too young. He was too maybe pretty or whatever. He was not Freddie's type. Freddie was kind of the boy that was just out of reach, just a few fingertips away. But it didn't happen, I'd like to say that. Freddie and I never hid what we did. David and Angie, what I liked about them, were totally non-judgmental. David knew exactly what I did for a living and he knew what Freddie did. We were very open about it back then. And David, I remember him cracking up at the stories I used to tell him about the antics that I got up to in, in Churchill's. And Angie actually wrote some sort of musical about me at one point called Razor. So I think they were very interested in that world. You know, I don't think it was a conscious decision. I think that they gravitated towards people that interested them. And we did live an interesting life. Wendy Kirby, recalling the time 50 years ago when she lived with Freddie Beretti and experienced firsthand the creative relationship between Freddie and David. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes. A lot of them never seen before that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. In the next episode... Wendy describes how the close circle of friends that lived and worked with Angie and Bowie rapidly changed as David's career took off and the Bowie's move from Haddon Hall in Beckenham to Oakley Street in Chelsea. I'm Des Shaw and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. Listener.